The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So we're finishing up Chapter 5 in Jack Hartfield's book. And in this chapter, like every chapter, he distills a particular principle in the, the Buddhist teachings. So the chapter is called The Mysterious Illusion of Self. And the principle in this chapter is our ideas of self are created by identification. The less we cling to ideas of self, the freer and happier we will be. And in the previous chapter, um, it was about the colorings of consciousness. Just the different moods, different views or attitudes that color our mind. And a lot of times, of course, we're not so aware of the particular view or the particular coloring. Like, we could check right now. Are we aware of the particular coloring of the mind through which we experience the present moment? It's like having a particular spin. We might be in a funk or we might be feeling really happy. We might be really needy. And in this chapter, the point, and this is such a central teaching in the Buddhist teachings, it's really about this view, you know, it's all about me. It's a particular coloring of our mind. It's all about me. And we're living out of this particular view, of course, if not all the time, almost all the time. Think about just the different moments you experience today could be driving or interacting with somebody or doing your job or whatever it might be. But if you gaze upon that memory, you know, with a sort of clarity, you might be able to pick up that what that moment was really about was all about me in one way or another. That this is the particular coloring more pervasive probably than any other coloring. In much the same way that, you know, if we get a physical habit, a physical injury, or just get into a particular habit with our body, day in, day out, year after year, the body begins to find that way of holding tension normal. And uh, doesn't stand out. You know, like I have a tendency to tense my shoulders and they sort of ride up a little bit. And it's interesting, you know, how you can catch yourself holding tension in ways the moment, two moments before, you had no idea. But then when you see it clearly, so obvious, you know, oh, I don't need to do that. And there's so many, of course, patterns we're not seeing, physical patterns we're not seeing, ways we're holding our body, tensing. That's why there's so many body workers and uh, healers that help human beings with all their, you know, structural problems due to chronic holding, physical holding. Now, the same thing with the mind. These ways of the mind sort of um, holding a view, constructing a view, living out of that view, it's so pervasive, replicated over and over again, 
that it doesn't appear to be any view. You know, we see this with people who, you know, to us might stand out at being really caught in a particular opinion or a particular affect. You know how obvious it can be to us when we see somebody with a really strong affect? You know, and it's like we get them pegged right away. But that doesn't mean they are aware of that sort of particular personality expression. We might see it, but they may be completely oblivious to it. And what I'm suggesting is that the primary, you know, affect we all have is it's all about me. And this is so commonplace, so pervasive, that we never notice it. And it's not even like our good friends can mirror it back to us because they agree. <laughs> it's all about me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we're, we're sort of replicating this together culturally. It's all about me. It just feels so appropriate to move through life with that view. It almost is, for us, in a conventional way, synonymous with being a human being. Like living out of that view, we, don't, we can't even imagine another way of being in our experience, in our lives. It's all about me. Even if you get interested in the Buddhist teachings and start meditating and studying and coming to a place like Common Ground, it can still be all about me who wants to be enlightened, or all about me, who wants to be free of self. So you can even, any spiritual practice, path, can be just another part, another expression of that view, that basic view, it's all about me. So, we need to bring a real sense of humor about this. It, it's, a, it's probably one of the easiest ways to illuminate it is to have a sense of humor about it and to begin to track. I think I mentioned this last week for those of you who are here or the last couple of weeks as we looked at this chapter. If we start to track the different expressions of that, it's all about me, right? Because it's all about me is sort of the generic view, but the particular manifestation of that view, it's all about me, is different. Like right now, your, the particular manifestation, it's all about me, you know, being here with some sense that I'm here to get something, to get somewhere, that's maybe your expression, it's all about me. But we can track and we can see how fluid the expression is through the day. I mean, how many different varieties of it's all about me have we experienced today. You know, taking the beautiful day personally, as if the warmth and the sunshine is all about me. You know, it's like uh, a gift to me, something for me to indulge in or to like. Did you have, or did you have any moments today when you're outside where the experience of the weather, the experience of the, you know, the temperature and the sight, that it did, wasn't colored with, it's all about me. But just warmth as warmth, 
sunshine is sunshine. See, normally with beauty, with pleasant experience, and with unpleasant experience, we convert it. It gets immediately converted to something about me. This beautiful day is happening to me. I'm so grateful. I hope it lasts for me. And all the neutral experience, if it's not uh, clearly pleasant or clearly unpleasant, we tend to just ignore because it's not so easy to convert neutral experience into it's all about me. So if we get good, inspired, uh, good at tracking the different identities, self-identities through the day, something really powerful begins to happen. We undermine the notion. There is something that's pervasive. You know, it's really the tension that goes with it's all about me. It's a subtle, pervasive, psychological contraction. It's like we're uh, the mind, whatever that is, that great mystery of awareness, is getting, is putting itself in a box. Oh, it's all about me, you know, this life. It defines life, you know, the experience in some way, and that's the box that we inhabit, the mind inhabits. And it feels contained. In fact, it feels tight. But we're used to that feeling. And we're so used to that feeling, it feels safe. It feels safe to be tight. Like, we feel safe with our problems. We feel safe with our worries. I mean, I know that on one level we wish we didn't have any problems and didn't have any worries. Some of you know the Bhagavad Gita, and there's a scene, Arjuna, it's a famous text in India, <clears throat> ancient, epic, spiritual text, and Arjuna is sort of stand-in for sort of humanity. And Krishna is the stand-in for wisdom. And Arjuna is in this terrible situation, this epic battle, and, uh, and it split his family apart. So on the other side of the battlefield are some of his best teachers and lots of his relatives. And they both have these very powerful armies. And he's starting to have second thoughts about it. He has every sort of reason to engage in battle. You know, the, an injustice has been done. And it's appropriate, you know, in that context to do battle. But he's just doesn't make sense to him. And so the whole epic, the whole sort of spiritual teaching is this conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, his charioteer, the person who's driving his chariot. And uh, the reason he has Krishna, by the way, is uh, somehow he had a choice. He could take all the armies of the family, or he could have Krishna as his charioteer. And he, he chose Krishna, that wisdom, you know, to be uh, on his side. So the other side got all the standing armies. So anyway, he's having this conversation with Krishna, and he's hesitating about fulfilling his duty. You know, it's his duty. It's his responsibility, given the way it's all set up. This is what he's meant to do, but he doesn't like it, and he's hesitating. So he's having this conversation with Krishna. Krishna is teaching him about duty and about uh, emptiness in a way, even though it's not in a Buddhist con context. But at some point, Arjuna asks Krishna, 
you know, if only I could have your view of things. You know, because Arjuna has our view of things. He's in the box all the time. It's always about him. Like, not wanting to be the guy having to fight this battle when I care about those people on the other side. It's a very provocative image because most of us, you know, think war is bad. And so it's interesting that it's being used in this context uh, about submitting to one's sort of duty is really what it's about in a way, including having to fight battles when you don't want to fight battles because sometimes life is messy. Now, if you don't like the idea of two people or thousands of people squaring off for a battle, you can just think about you and your teenage daughter or son and how sometimes it's appropriate for the parent to dig in and to not back off, right? So um, just, to, just to sort of uh, see this image in a context that makes sense to you. So uh, Arjuna asks Krishna if he could somehow give him a taste of what it's like, his view of things, you know, the, the vast, the view that doesn't include it's all about me, the view that the way of being in experience where there isn't that. And so Krishna somehow did snapped his fingers or did something, and Arjuna sort of saw things that way and then completely freaked out. <laughs> because, like I suggested, we're, we're used to being contained <clears throat> by this view, it's all about me. It feels so familiar, and in a way we know the ropes. <clears throat> so, this is a, for generally, it's a gradual process of opening this up. Some of you know about Eckhart Tolle, he's a, a well-known teacher, mindfulness or awareness teacher, I'm not sure what, how he refers to himself. He doesn't really consider himself Buddhist or any particular ism. But anyway, he's quite well-known, well-known author. Um, but uh, if you hear him tell a story or read about him telling a story about how his, you know, how he developed insight, he had sort of a profound awakening. He stepped outside of his box, and it took him, I don't know how many years, he sort of wandered uh, somewhat aimlessly and in, uh, not, not having integrated what he had come to understand or see for many years before he could just sort of start functioning in what we would call a normal way and then later becoming a quite powerful teacher. And this is, you know, this happens. But for most people, it's a gradual sort of um, learning, learning one, that the self-identity is never useful. It's never functional. It doesn't make us more competent to be attached to a self-view. So that's one thing we can start just picking up as we catch it. We start to notice the self-centered views that we're living out of and realize that we do much better without it, or we do much better if we just loosened it up a little bit, at least. So that's one thing we can start recognizing immediately, and that just starts to loosen everything up. And the other thing, as I suggested a few minutes ago, is we can see that any particular view, even really, you know, relatively speaking, uh, functional self-views, as well as the really dysfunctional self-views. Like we can have a functional self-view, I care about all of you guys. You know, I care about all beings. Everybody's doing the best. 
So th this is a, an expression of a relatively functional self-view. I think everybody's doing the best they can, myself included. So, but if I'm attached to that view, if I think that somehow represents the truth, then I'm still in a box, but it's a, it's a more roomy box than, you know, some of the other boxes we can get ourselves in, which, you know, like, nobody loves me, or you guys are all jerks, or that's a tight box. You know, I need to teach you something. <laughs> that's a tight box to be in. And uh, so we can start to see how we move from different kinds of boxes. And wouldn't it be nice if, if we had a videographer somehow capturing the different views, self-centered views, self-identities we've lived out of today, so we could just, in snapshots, see it. Think of, what, think of what it would teach us, like how fluid it is. It would really deeply, we'd de get deeply grounded in the truth that no view, whatever view we're in in this moment, is really self in any permanent sense. It's a temporary self. It's a temporary way of constructing our reality, of understanding this experience. But it always feels consistent. You know, the particular way we're experiencing this moment, the self that's here now, seems like it's the same self that was there earlier today and yesterday and even back when we were young. But the only thing that's consistent is the tension, the stress of the box of being contained. So that's why it does appear to us like there is, we're the same person all the way along. Because the mind w was contained in the box then, and now it's contained in the box, and to some degree in the future we're likely to be contained in the box. So we're trying to see that even though the tension is, is the same, the, sh the particular shape of the identity is, qu is quite fluid. And that, that's like a, a seed of wisdom, a little irritant in self-identity. Because what makes self-identity so easy for us to replicate over and over again is this deep conviction that it's true in some permanent, real, lasting way. But when we start to see and know deeply that it's fluid, that the sense of self is fluid, then it's just harder and harder for us to take the particular view we're living out of right now to be anything more than a particular view we're living out of right now. So we're not saying that it's nothing. We're just saying it's relative. It's just relative to this moment, this point of view. And that's so helpful because then when we get in one of those really despicable, dysfunctional points of view, which inevitably is going to happen to us, there's wisdom present that understands this is just a relative, temporary point of view. It's heavy, it's painful, it's dysfunctional, and it will change when conditions change. So this neurotic, defensive, controlling mark that's alive now is specific to the causes and conditions right now. And when those causes and con conditions change, then mark is different. So the whole sense of self begins to be seen more in terms of a, a fluid or a process orientation instead of fixed. 
Because isn't that how we, we just assume it's the same? So the flu itself, then, then all of a sudden we, we start to recognize where the play, what's the role for responsibility? Because now, because the self is fluid, what we're taking ourselves to be, because that's fluid, we can participate much more in creating more functional, more healthy selves, you know, more healthy identities. And so then it sort of begs the question, what is the most healthy identity, the most functional identity? You know, the Buddha would say something like uh, an empty identity, right? Like to really set this body-mind process free of any fixed notion. Doesn't mean there aren't thoughts in the mind. Doesn't mean there aren't opinions in the mind. But there's nothing fixed anywhere in the mind. That would be that view, if you want to call it a view, or that sort of identity, if you want to call it an identity, would be the healthiest, most wholesome identity. To set the mind, heart, body completely free of friction. What the view does, you know, any sort of grasping, attachment, identification in the mind, it's creating the appearance of things being fixed. Like our world feels so solid, not because it's actually solid. I mean, you can even ask physicists. They'll tell you there's nothing solid here. And you can ask meditators this question, too, people who've been practicing for a while, and they'll tell you there's nothing solid here. Because meditators, people who've been practicing for a while and can you know, cultivate states of calm, the, the body isn't experienced as being solid. Nothing is experienced as being solid. Thought, opinions, sensations, things are very alive with change, with movement. So, but our, the capacity the mind has to get identified or get attached, or in Buddhism we call it clinging or grasping, to grasp experience, it's a way, it's almost an, a magical way of creating friction. And that's that tension that we take to be self. Isn't it ironic that what we, not that we're conscious of this, but what we actually take to be self is the experience of stress, psychological stress or psychological holding. That is, when we actually look, like if I said, how do you know you're here? You know, that's a, that's a relevant question in this context at least, right? How do you know you're really somebody here now? Okay? Well, what we do, well, I feel something, right? But, in, but when the awareness, when the mind is in balance, alert, relaxed, what we feel is the joy of nothing being fixed. It's the fluidity of experience that is actually the joy of the awakening process. So when we say, well, I know I'm here because I, you know, I, I feel this, but what we actually feel is, one person described it as rope burn, you know, it's like things are moving, but somehow we're creating friction. And in those moments where you felt really alive and really free, probably you just accidentally 
fell into an experience where you weren't creating friction. The mind let go, you know, and you can reflect on the causes and conditions that might have supported that not creating friction in those moments. A lot of times when we have those moments, what we do is we create friction around them. Like, I really like that moment. I want it back. What can I do? I'll build a church around that moment, you know, or tell my friends about that moment. <laughs> but all of that, of course, is not that moment of the mind realizing it doesn't have to create friction. In Jack Kornfeld's book, he says, we don't need to get rid of anything. The experiences are the same. All that has changed is that we've stopped identifying with them, stopped calling them me or mine. Some people feel as though a huge weight has lifted. They sob with compassion for themselves, realizing the illusory burden they've been carrying. More often, we simply relax and discover our natural ease as we let go of the limited sense of self. I remember one of the first clear moments of this in my practice. And uh, the response was like this, this very hearty laugh, like unbelievable. It's unbelievable that we've gotten in this habit of constructing weight. And it's, it's unbelievable. There's a sense of unbelievable gratefulness that it's actually not that way. That the weight is a sort of a temporary, I mean, it's the habit is to, to replicate it over and over again, but it's optional. That's what's unbelievable, that it's optional, that it doesn't have to be that way. So there's really two ways that support this awakening process. Again, we're awakening to two things. We're awakening to how the mind creates unnecessary psychic, psychological weight through the process of identification, attachment or clinging. And we're awakening to the reality that it doesn't have to be that way. That no matter how much we've been doing it, and no matter how consistent we have been creating a psych psychological tension, if we don't do it in the next moment, it's not there. This is what's really amazing. It's like we have to keep replicating that stress in order to feel stressed. It's not like you made a mistake once and you're damned forever. Rather, we have to, we, we have to reconstruct a sense of separation, a sense of self who is afraid of this, who wants this, we have to project that again and again in order to maintain the sense of suffering or the sense of stress in life. And so why that's important is that that means in any moment, it can all we have to do is not do what we've been doing. That's why the practice is so tricky. It's not so much we have to do something special to have a moment of freedom. Because, you know, human beings are pretty good at trying to do special things. All life long, we're trying to be special. So you think we would have mastered it. But we haven't mastered it because it isn't about doing something special. 
It's about stopping doing something. And the thing we have to stop doing, we've been doing so long and it's so pervasive that we take it to be who we are. So, you know, another way people have said this over the years is it's the trying to be happy that is the cause of stress. The thought that there's somebody that needs to get something to be happy is the actual root of suffering. And the resolution to that is to see things as they are. To see that there actually isn't somebody apart who needs to be happy. But that whole sense of somebody being apart who needs to be happy is a construction the mind is replicating over and over again. And we arrogantly cling to this idea. Because on the surface, with our conventional way of thinking, it's so apparent that there's a self who wants to be free from suffering, right? That just the way our mind has been conditioned, that just seems so obvious to us. Well, of course, I'm here, and I don't want to be burdened by life. I don't want to be stressed by life. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be needy. And we're so uh, caught in dealing with the surface level of our conditioned mind, we haven't done enough quiet, calm, fearless reflection on what's really going on here. What really leads to the happiness or the freedom we're interested in? Is it Mark trying to get something that leads to it? And if you just look at your experiences, like that's what's so powerful about tracking through the day. And of course, this just means being mindful, right? So if we're going to really track... I mean, mindfulness isn't about being aware of lifting your foot and placing your foot. All those gimmicks, feeling your breath going in, feeling your breath going out, notice walking, notice the breeze touching the skin, they're gimmicks that allow the mind to be mindful of the mind itself. We need to wake up to the mind. And so these other techniques, they're very useful, maybe indispensable, to um, sort of create the stability, the sense of simple presence here now, so that we can actually notice what the mind is doing, what the activity of the mind is, what the structures of the habits of the mind. And to see that they're not self. Like, so when we see that process of grasping or taking things personally or separating, when you see it, then you know it's not self. Because if you can see it, it's just a pattern. You know, it's just, just like, uh, you know, we can, when we are observing sensation, we also understand that that's not self. When we really feel sensation. So by, by seeing things as objects, including the deluded or the confused nature of the mind, conditioning of the mind, it really is the loosening of all those screws. Pema Children says, being preoccupied with self-image is like coming upon a tree of singing birds while wearing earplugs. So to not cultivate this simple presence means we're forever trapped in our thoughts about things, our ideas about things, our opinions about things, all basically coming out of this, it's all about me. 
And that's such a narrow, limited box to be living out of. So we feel dissatisfied living out of that box. So what we do, you know, this, like one metaphor is, what we do is we rearrange the furniture in the box. But it's still a limited box. You know, like uh, Carol Wilson has this image of being in prison with the door wide open, you know, and obsessively thinking about, you know, where to put the three pieces of furniture in the prison cell instead of walking out of the door. So I was saying there are two ways to, and then I'll open it up for discussion. Most of you know this, but just to get clear again, to be reminded again, there are really two ways to understand our predicament. One is to cultivate, find ways to experience deep states of calm, contentment, and ease. Because when we're feeling a lot of contentment and ease, the neurotic tendencies of the mind are suppressed. Because most of our neurotic tendencies of mind, most of our selfing energy is about getting ease and contentment. So when we have it, a lot of that energy falls away. And then when it starts to coming up, come up again, then we're going to see it from the point of view of contentment or from the point of view of stillness. So it really stands out. The neurotic activity stands out because it's been slowed down, suppressed. Then when it does happen, it really, we really see how dysfunctional it is, how unnecessary it is. So that's, that's the first path. So a lot of meditation practice is learning how to play with the mind in ways that create deeper states of calm and serenity and contentment and peace so that the, the selfing habit, when it re-arises, gets seen clearly. And the other way, and they're not distinct, completely distinct, sort of different angles on the task of waking up. The other way we call wisdom. So there's the path of calm, and then you could emphasize the path of wisdom. Usually we bring both of them together, working together, but just to see them, understand them as separate sort of approaches. So the, the, the path of wisdom is more that, that continuous tracking and investigation like, well, that's interesting. A few minutes ago, I was the rageful one, you know, hating myself, let's say. And now, three minutes later, I really care about how difficult it is being a human being. Now, I'm the one who loves. Isn't that interesting? You know, and then now, I'm really attached to being the one who loves. I'm no longer the one who loves. I'm, I'm the one who's attached, who's identified, who wants people to recognize that I'm the one who loves. You know? And now, because, because now, being the one attached to the one who loves means we're not connected with love anymore. Now, the next moment, I'm identified with being full of doubt. I'm the one who doubts I know what the hell practice is about. <laughs> right? Because we start feeling a little discombobulated, like, I was caught in anger, then I cared, there was just this beautiful compassion and forgiveness, and then there was this feeling of 
attachment and wanting people to realize how powerful my practice is and how I can <laughs> love even my hateful self. And, and now I don't know, now I think I don't know what the heck practice is about. And that's the wisdom where we we're directly seeing the delusion of what we take self to be. We're seeing all the holes. Like uh, this great Indian saint, Nisak Sargadatta says, it's like uh, we see the world, you know, as being substantial, but it's actually full of holes. And the image I like is like the back door screen. You know, you can train your mind to be completely fixated on the screen, you know, seeing just the screen, and you, you're not going to see the backyard at all. But then if you relax your gaze, of course, all, all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, there's a backyard out there. And this is how it is for us. We're so fixated on the self who wants to be happy, on the self who wants to be away from the dangerous stuff, that we don't really see what's going on here. And wisdom is what, it's that sort of questioning and what really supports wisdom is the continuity of mindfulness, which actually is what supports deeper states of calm. So it's really an orientation, like are you cultivating continuous mindfulness in order to realize deeper states of serenity, or in order to, because you want to see things as it is, as it actually is, sort of seeking the truth. And you're just, different people have different practice personalities. Some of us are much more interested in the truth. Some of us are much more interested in serenity. It actually doesn't matter too much. As long as you cultivate a continuity of mindfulness, you're going to get both. It's just a matter of how much wisdom you develop on the way to serenity or how much serenity you develop on your way to deepening wisdom. But I'll leave it here so we have 15 minutes. It would be nice here we'll be moving on to chapter six next week. Um, if those of you who would like to read with the group, don't feel like you have to get the book, but it's quite good. But any thoughts that you have, things that seem familiar from the talk, from your own experience you'd like to share with the group, or of course any questions you might have, what comes to mind? Notice sense of self ever? <laughs> what makes it come and go? Yeah, please say your name. Letting go of the self, cultivating mindfulness, while living in a society that puts so much emphasis on individual choices. How do you make choices throughout life? You have to make from a point of view of self, while accepting why do you think you have to make choices from the point of view of self? I guess because I'm not making the choice. Well, obviously things are going to happen, and we just let them happen out of the present moment. So it's really a shift in understanding. It's like, in a sense, like I said earlier, there is a self, but that self is specific to the present moment. Rachel is who she is in that moment. And who is Rachel in this moment? Well, she is the, you know, in this moment, there is this arising of causes and conditions. Like your past, right, is arising this moment as you. Your genetic past, 
your cultural conditioning, what you've eaten, you know. All of that experience, all that stuff is arising, and then there's Rachel. Now, the next moment, it's a different Rachel. Because in the first moment, there was Rachel, and part of Rachel was Rachel understanding this moment, right? And that made this moment this moment. Now, the way you understood this moment, the way you related to it, that affects the next moment as well as anything else that's shifted in terms of the causes and conditions. So I, I strongly encourage you to experiment. This is actually a fun experiment. Try to spend a day not making any choices as a self. And you'll still make choices. You'll find yourself doing things, feeding the body, taking a shower, calling a friend, going to work. You'll be sitting there, okay, I'm not going to make a choice. And fear will arise. Oh, you know... I better go to work or I won't get paid, you know? And and even the thought, whoa, I don't want to make a choice is a choice. Do you know what I mean? So the, the amazing thing about nature, and by nature I mean everything, our mind is as much nature as the weather is nature. The amazing thing about nature, it has no problem doing its thing. That, in a way, is as much a definition of nature as anything. Nature is that which has no problem doing its thing. So it sounds, it feels like when we think about our life and tell people about our life, it seems like it's been a real struggle to be Mark and to make all the choices and decisions I've had to make in my life. But that's just a particular point of view. It's like an overlay. It would be as if the weather you know, had a thought, God, it's been so hard being winter in Minnesota this year. <laughs> but actually... There's no center to the activity of winter. And in the same way, there's no center to Rachel. We think there's a center to Mark or to Rachel. We impute a center. And then once there's a center, then there's somebody who has to do this life. And then there's somebody who's burdened by all that doing. But imagine, literally use your imagination to live your life for the rest of today, tomorrow, and then forever. <laughs> without imputing a sense of center. What would that be like? Just to see. Well, we'll see what happens. For a long time, this is just, I don't, I'm not necessarily recommending it, but for a long time, just to play with this, back in the 80s when I was willing to try anything in terms of my practice, I was like, question, you, you raised, Rachel, about choices. And uh, so for a while, I just started flipping a coin. I, first of all, I prepared myself to I really don't know what's right, you know, and I, and I know that I can't figure it out. There's just too many factors to really know about what's best for me. And, and I even had some questions about what me was then, you know. So I started just flipping a coin and, and then just doing whatever the coin said. And it worked pretty well. And, of course, I only did that when I really didn't know. When I knew, then I knew. And I just, I did that. And then I didn't have to make a choice because I already knew what to do. You still do it? I don't. I, there was one time when uh, I, thought I, was, I thought I was indifferent. And then I flipped the coin and it said to do one thing. And I, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> so then I realized that that won't work anymore. But for several years, I did it. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it was very liberating. But it's a gimmick. You know, ideally, we're just letting the mind and all the conditions participate in the choice-making. 
including stagnation as a viable choice. You know, not knowing what to do is a choice. And we can hang out there until the system on the mind, body, and the external situation too. So all of it gets to participate in the choice making. But, it, but we have to sort of let go of this self-seriousness that there's a right choice for Rachel or for Mark. That, that somehow, you know, yeah, that just that, that very strong sense of center that needs to be protected. Other thoughts? Yeah, Nick. Um, I'm Dan, I'm sorry. Um, you were talking about um, the choice being a right choice or a wrong choice, and it's almost like that worry of whether or not it's the right one or the wrong one is what makes it so heavy. Yeah. Because it's just a choice. It's, it's a choice that you made, and it's made out of the present moment or out of um, not worrying about the the next moment, just feeling the current moment, um, then it is just a choice that you make that allows you to be in that moment. Yeah. Am I making the right choice for next summer? Am I, am I buying the right car for two years on the road? Now I'll buy the right car now because it fits what I need now, and I'll worry about later later. Yeah. And, and what really switches that, allows for that, is when there's an imputed sense of center, then it matters whether we make the right or wrong choice. But when we're letting go of that, then what really drives the choice? Well, it's not about the choice. It's about being free. So nature is making choices. Causes and conditions are making choices. And then the practice is being free. So it's like two different points of view. One point of view is we're living life in order to protect that center, that imagined center, to get good things for that imagined center. The other is, without a sense of center, is how to be free in the movement of life. How to remain free. How not to project or how, how not to uh, impose suffering in the free movement of nature. And that's like a different, so as you're walking into a business meeting or into some engagement, like how to be free here, how to let this be free, like a, you know, like a meadow in the summertime or a nice blizzard or like, just like that's free too, that's happening freely. There's no body feeling burdened by that natural activity. Other thoughts people have? Questions? Yeah, Shannon. Yeah, I, I, um, I the, the last part of the question that you answered sort of um, solidified this a little bit more for me, but I just wonder if you could talk a little bit um, more specifically um, about serenity and ease and contentment versus um, and, and sort of practicing to, to get that and then and then the, the happiness side of it. I don't know if I'm articulating myself exactly how I mean, but there's there seems to be I'm not Yeah. Because I think of myself as the, I think I'm much stronger on the wisdom part of what's in the Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And so and so um 
But I, I do see that um, I can get caught up in my daily life, especially like as a mom and partner, and you know, like just the, like okay, I've got to do this, okay, I've got to do that, I've got to, you know what I mean? And then there, there, that thought of like, well, I just want to be happy does come in there. But then I know that it has to be the you know the, the actual practice of ease and contentedness to sort of bust. Yeah, yeah, and your words choice are good there, I think, because one of the images from, I think, the time of the Buddha is the honed and heavy axe, and the tranquility is the weight of the axe, and the wisdom is the sharpness of the axe, and, you know, you could have something really sharp, but it wouldn't do a good job cutting, or you could have something really heavy, like a sledgehammer, but it wouldn't do a good job cutting, but if you combine the sharpness with weight, you can do a lot of cutting. And it's the same thing, like uh, you might have, you know, one of us may have a lot of wisdom function in the mind. And just that, that deep interest in wanting to see things clearly, wanting to get to the bottom, wanting to understand deeply how it is. But if the mind doesn't have a lot of tranquility, we're just going to be on the surface, kind of flitting about. There is a very um, profound interest in the truth, but there's no stability to go deep. And if all we have is tranquility, we're going to be just content. But nothing fundamental will change because we're not investigating. We're not sort of using the weight to, to sort of understand what's going on. So generally, it's good to emphasize what comes naturally for the mind. You know, So if we more the wisdom type versus more the serenity type, emphasize that. But just understand. So then you're basically using wisdom to see what's in the way of serenity. You know, like, like you, you want to you wanna hold out this notion that this heart, this mind can be freely at ease, even as a busy professional, even as a mom, even as someone with a partner, even someone living in this culture. It's possible for this heart to be at ease. Because then it really, that gives you the right context to engage the wisdom. Like, well, what's in the way of being at ease? You know, and so that's your really, instead of contemplating self and non-self, I mean, that's okay to some degree, but really use the wisdom to see what's in the way of being content, what's in the way of being happy. Do Just because the world is this way, just because I'm this way, does that mean I have to be unhappy? Or is happiness actually possible? And you really investigate that bring that sort of deep desire to understand, to want to know things as they are, to see, can this heart, mind be happy and at ease? Mm -hmm. And people with serenity, you know, you, you get yourself into the deepest state of serenity you can, and then you see it fall apart, and you get interested in that. That's the other way. Who's messing with my serenity? <laughs> you know, it's like you're there and you're just feeling really at ease, you know, and then, and then you think, oh, it'd be so much nicer if I had a fireplace, you know? <laughs> and just that desire for a fireplace, sort of, you see how it ruins the, the tranquility. And then, and then that's, that sort of sparks that sort of wisdom function. Well, how did that happen? I was perfectly content. Why did the mind imagine something and then crave it? Why wasn't it content just to be content? That's interesting. It's that old habit of imputing a self. And then as soon as you have a self, 
Self only makes sense if it has desires and fears. So it sets in motion, things like thinking about a fireplace. Yeah, Dave. So I guess the self, the only good it does is just keeps us alive. Well, I think that's a good question. Does it? You know, I, I don't think a self keeps us alive. Well, in a sense, in a, in a more barbaric way, I mean, if it, um, uh, it's competing, if everyone has a self, then other, all the cells are competing. Yeah, but it, it, in a way, I think in a truer sense, the self is unnecessary tension in the dynamic. Like, you know, if we, if we are an old person and uh, we didn't have much understanding, we could be freaking out being close to death. And in that way, the sense of self is not prolonging life at all. You know, it's not helping in any sort of survival sense. It's just pure, unnecessary suffering. And, you know, like for in terms of mating and reproducing, you know, all of that is built in. You know, the attraction and stuff like that, you know, to some degree at least, it's just built in. And... Uh, Adding layers of self-identity to it actually can create a lot more neurotic stuff that gets in the way of hooking up with somebody. So, I mean, just imagine how many, how long our first relationship probably would have lasted. You know, if there, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I just thought of my first relationship. Well, I, I was just sort of. Like, Kind of like on the lines of um, if you go back, go back a long time, you know, where you the elements and having a strong sense of self would be something that would protect you. Yeah, but I think you know more more in the sense where you know 50, 60, 70, 80,000 years ago, you know, I mean, you have to consider when that's when, yeah. when the concept of the self became known and then when it was supposed to be dropped away. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I see what you're saying, and I think that's an important point. Uh, the way the survival instinct works is really for the physical mechanism. Yes. And at some point, the survival system got connected with the psychological system, the sense of self. And so now somebody uh, um, not liking me is a threat to my sense of self in the same way a saber-toothed tiger <laughs> might have been in the past. And so we've got a lot more triggers for that survival instinct now because of that identification that with the survival instinct with the sense of self, the psychological sense of self. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, um, what's your name? Christina. Christina. So I was just wondering about like if uh, when we were talking last week, about um, having a thought, if thought doesn't last, you just add to those thoughts and thought, thought, thought. Is there a good way to... Um, when it comes to trying to lose the, the self because of obsessing over the thoughts that we keep creating, is there a good like practice in order to? Because I have some an experience I had last night, and I keep like a picture in my head, and then I like ease off of it and be okay, and then just come back and make the same yeah. reaction, and it feels involuntary. Even though I know I'm doing it, it still feels very involuntary, and the frustration. Yeah. So first. We're not trying to lose the self because there really isn't the self as we imagine there is. So there's nothing we have to lose. We just need to understand the process like you described. 
So when you have a strong emotion or an image, that triggers, it seems like, a strong feeling, right? So the key with that is it's the not, it's the unwillingness to feel, to be intimate with that feeling, that emotion, that the thought and the thoughts are really a defense to keep us from feeling, a distraction to keep us from feeling that feeling. So if you can rally enough fearlessness, courageousness, to just be willing to feel that yucky feeling and even welcome it and let it move, let it be what it is. If it needs to get big, let it get really big. Don't be afraid, no matter how big it gets. Or if it's really subtle, let it get really subtle. But you're just interested in understanding the feeling for what it is. But if you, if you react to the feeling, it means that you think it has something to do with self. Because if there's no self, what does a non-self do? A non-self is willing to be completely open and vulnerable and undefended. It's only a self that has to defend itself by thinking about things, by thinking about thinking about things, and on and on like that. But, but when we're, that's why mindfulness is, the, that basic practice of mindfulness is the expression of non-self, or is the stepping outside of selfing. That's what mindfulness is. We need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.